Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Dr. Leonard Milad now back with us. Theoretical physicist, noted author. His latest book is called Stephen Hawking. Just came out. And he was on the faculty of the California Institute of Technology. And one of his other books is called Elastic, Unlocking Your Brain's Ability to Embrace Change. And uh, he has been a dear friend of the late Stephen Hawking. And here he is back on Coast to Coast. Leonard, welcome back, my friend. Happy to be here. This is my 12th appearance. That's fantastic. <laughs> Always fun, George. How much do you miss Stephen Hawking? Oh, I miss him a lot. Um, I, he added so much to my life. Uh, you know, people know him as a, as a great physicist, but once you get to know him as a person uh, and to see what he went through and the kind of character he had, uh, then that, that really teaches you great human lessons, uh, far much apart even beyond his physics. What a fighter he was, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, his every day, every, every moment of his life was, was a battle. Um, in, the, in, the, in the book, I talk about when I was first in his office and I see him, uh, some sweat going down his brow, and I was like horrified because he can't move, and I know what that feels like. It's like Chinese water torture, right? It's just like exactly. little pickle, and we just wipe it away without thinking, and he couldn't do that, and he'd have to either accept it or wait for one of his carers to notice it and wipe it off. And but what he was able to do was really to learn to to control his own feelings and, and his own uh, happiness from within and to decouple himself from a lot of these outside uh, things that, are, that he has to go through. Uh, so that, you know, whereas it really would bother you, uh, to him, it, 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 he... he told himself that he's not going to be bothered by it. And, you know, people don't realize that in his everyday life, how, you know, feeding him was difficult. They had to cut all the food. He could move a little bit in his head so he could chew a little bit, but some of it would come out. Yeah, his head was always tilted to the so, side, wasn't it? Yeah, he couldn't hold it up. And um, so feeding was quite an ordeal. He breathed through a stoma hole in his chest that would get clogged up, and he'd start to suffocate. They'd have to clear it. Uh, you know, moment after moment, uh, hour after hour, he had... You know, horrible. We would each consider a really horrible experience, and yet he he learned you know how to be happy and optimistic and energetic and have a joy of life despite all that. It was so. How can you be with that all day, every day for you know many days and not have that rub off on you? And 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 you apply it to your own life. He had that Lou Gehrig disease, ALS, which of course uh, destroyed his entire ability to have any muscle cysts or anything. How many years did he have that? He had it for, I think, about 55 years. You know, uh, most people die, uh, it's, I think, within two years. He was given two years. About 20% make it past uh, 10 years, but he went 55 years. That's a record as far as I know. As a physicist, and he was one of the best, what did he leave us? Well, Stephen started a physics career in the early 60s, and... You know, it's interesting. Again, it was his disease that made him a great physicist. He he was kind of a goof off at uh, as an undergrad at Oxford, and you know, he still did did fine. He was brilliant, but he didn't really apply himself. And when he was after he was diagnosed, and then he was at Cambridge for his graduate school, he, and he was given two years. He said to himself, "I want to address. I want to make um, my life mean mean something." And 
And, you know, finding meaning in life is so important. It's maybe the most important thing in life and, and, and the most important thing in having you overcome obstacles. And for him, the meaning was to understand where we came from, why we're here, why is the universe the way it is. And he decided to dedicate his, dedicate his last few years, what he thought would be a few years to that, turned out to be 55. But So he, he ended up working on problems that no one else, well, very few people were interested in back then. It was uh, the origin of the universe and these crazy things called black holes. And back then, physicists thought that we have no way of studying the early universe, I mean, experimentally or observationally, and the same with black holes. So why study them theoretically? Because we can't test our ideas. And, you know, that turned out to be wrong, and it turned out that those are very important realms to study and that, they, and, and that we can probe them. Later on, technology uh, developed that allowed us to do that, and we learn a lot by studying them. And he was one of the main pioneers who like, put that on the map and made it not just respectable but, but a hot topic. Did he talk much about the late Albert Einstein? Well, of course, uh, all physicists talk much about, <laughs> a lot about Albert Einstein and and one, Stephen studied two theories uh, that, that he put together. That was his specialty. And one was Einstein's general relativity, which is the theory of, of gravity. Uh, and the other one, and that's, a, that's applicable in, the, in astrophysics, in the large scale of stars and galaxies and the beginning of the universe. And, um, and the other theory was quantum theory, which isn't normally applicable in those realms because it's really a theory for the very small the atoms and subatomic particles. And in fact, the quantum theory and Einstein's relativity, they clash. They, they can't both be right. They're, they're contradictory. But physicists before Stephen didn't really mind that so much because some of them work in you know, extragalactic stuff with Einstein's theory and some work with quantum theory, and, and the, the clash never shows itself. But by concentrating on the problems he did, such as out, just outside a black hole or the early universe, it turns out that you need both, and those those are two of the only two situations where you really need both. And he had to make an art of, of of this, of applying a little bit of one and a little bit of the other in just the right way that they don't clash and, and to extract some, some answers. So he was a big, you know, uh, I mean, he idolized Einstein, as, as we all do, and... Um, and uh, and he, he was one of the people who took Einstein's theory and moved it forward. How did you get to know Stephen Hawking, Leonard? Huh. Well, he had read my first two books. So Euclid's Window, which was about curved space, and the second one was called Feynman's Rainbow, um, a memoir of friendship. Uh, no, that's the new one. <laughs> um, <laughs> a search for You've got so many out there now, huh? Yeah, I've got, well, I've got these two, two icons of the century, actually, Richard Feynman. It was called A Search for Beauty in Physics and in Life, about my relationship with him when I was in my 20s and now with Stephen, uh, you know, in my 50s and 60s. So it's kind of interesting. But he read those two books, and he was looking for someone to write with because writing and communicating is so difficult for him. And he, he apparently had been looking for a while and couldn't find somebody. that He, he wanted someone where he, with a sense of humor whose writing he liked and who also really knew physics, like a physicist. And one day I got a call from my agent that his office had contacted her and said, well, would I like to write with him? I didn't have to think very long. <laughs> yeah, I think I would. So, and the idea then was to rewrite his famous book, A Brief History of Time, in a way to make it more understandable. Um, he knew that, you know, even though it sold more than 10 million copies, that most people didn't finish it or didn't understand all of it. And he wanted to make a clearer version. And, and so that's what we did together. That was called... 
a briefer history of time. That's right, and that was a classic. Yeah, as well. and after that, we, you know, I said, hey, and I was on the faculty at Caltech, and he would come for four to six weeks each year, and so the next time he came, I looked him up. I said, hey, it was so much fun writing that other book. Let's write a book about your new stuff, you know, because that's all about the stuff he did in the 70s and 80s. And I thought he would have to think about it. He was like me. He immediately said, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that was the only easy go. part of that book. <laughs> Let me tell you. Leonard, explain to us, what is a giant quantum computer? What is a quantum computer? Okay, so, well, um, can I assume that everyone knows how a computer works, or should I start? Um, we may not know that either. <laughs> so a computer is... The idea behind a computer is that you can use the laws of logic or arithmetic to not only to do math problems, but to to solve problems in the everyday world if you just translate them somehow to a mathematical language. So a regular computer does that. It has It's a bunch of switches that are connected, and they talk to each other. They're either on or off. And, and by reducing language or reasoning to the rules of logic, you can get a computer to to answer questions in business or in math or in different areas, and that's how our phones work and everything that we use works. You know, it's mm-hmm. basically millions and millions of little switches that are connected in some brilliant way to allow them to make do these functions that we want. Now, that's a regular computer. It's, uh, I mean, it, 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 it's, the switches are either on or off, so that makes them what we would call physicists a classical computer or just a computer that works in the, in the same way as Newton's laws. Now, quantum theory, uh, if you just look in the realm of atoms, it would be, things behave differently, and a switch can be on and off at the same time. It can, have, uh, it can be what we call a superposition of on and off. And that sounds kind of weird, but you know, we won't get into that. You just have to accept that's quantum theory. And so if you make a computer based on switches that are of that nature that can be on and off at the same time, it turns out that you can get a much more powerful, much faster I mean, extremely, unimaginably faster, better computer that way than, than, the, than the other way. So that's what a, a quantum computer is, is a computer that, um, that works on, with switches that are like atoms. The atoms, each switch is, say, an atom or, or a molecule or, or maybe the state of a photon, which is a particle of light. People are trying to figure out which kinds of particles to use to, to build their quantum computers. It's just at the beginning stages now. But... But that would be the components would be that instead of the the switches that we that we have the tiny molecular switches that we now have in computers. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.